Recently, my wife and I were at a lunch for a friend's 40th birthday party. After sharing a drink and eating a meal together, the waiter came by to deliver everybody his checks. He started with the couple directly across from us, laid their check down, here you two go, thanks for coming in. To the next couple, here's yours, and he did this all the way around the table. And I was sitting, waiting for him to lay down our check in front of us. But after he gave uh, the person to our right their check, he said, all right, everybody, there's your checks, I'll be right back to pick them up. And I thought, oh, well, I haven't got mine yet. Um, and this guy totally forgot to get ours. And so he walked by our table a few moments later to pick up everybody's cards in their cash. And I interrupted him and said, hey, excuse me, uh, my wife and I actually didn't get our check when, uh, when you were just here passing out everybody's, everybody else's. And he said, oh, you're good. Yours has been covered. My wife and I then looked around the table as he started to pick up everybody else's uh, cash and cards and trying to figure out who just did this generous deed. And no one said anything. No one gave any sort of subtle indication that it was then. There was no, you know, smiling face, no wink, or someone nudged with a whisper, hey, I got you. Don't worry about it. Nothing. Nothing at all. Someone paid for our meal, and we had no idea who did it. And we still don't know who did it. Whoever it was decided they wanted to keep their generosity a secret. No thanks necessary. And that practice of living in secret of being generous in secret, of doing good and not needing any credit is what we're covering today in our series, Unfiltered, that's over Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The last couple weeks of this series, we've been in Matthew chapter 5, talking about Jesus' various teachings that he has there. And today, we'll move into the next part of Jesus' Sermon in Matthew chapter 6. See, Matthew 6 represents a transition in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 has primarily been about the what of living in God's kingdom. The what of loving our enemies, like we talked about last week, of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile that we covered two weeks ago. It's the what that Jesus is asking his followers to do. But chapter 6 makes a shift as Jesus is teaching, and he talks about the how. Here's how I want my followers to go about living in my kingdom. See, for Jesus, it's not only important that a person does what is right, but also that they do it in the right way, too. Following Jesus means we can't separate what he is doing from the way he is doing it. See, Jesus refused to do good things, healing the sick, elevating the poor, preaching to the downtrodden in the wrong ways. And he asks us to do the same. It's ways and means, means and ends. They need to match up together. You could say that the commands of chapter 5, they have dealt primarily with actions. In these ones in chapter 6, Jesus moves to start dealing with our intentions, with our motivations. See, Jesus wants us to do what is right. He wants us to love our enemies, love our neighbors, give to the poor, pay for someone's meal at a restaurant, help that single mother with their home project, but for the right reasons. We love our enemies, not with resentment in our hearts, but with a motivation of compassion. We show mercy, not to make a show of ourselves and and, and show the whole world how good of people we are, but to have regard for our neighbors and just consider their needs. We welcome those who are outcasts, not to impress the world with our great sacrifices, but to help this person who's felt on the outside feel on the inside. The way we do what Jesus asks of us is as important as the fact that we do it in the first place. Now, Jesus, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, he selects three distinct practices to highlight this idea that motivation is as important as doing the thing. The three practices Jesus highlights are giving to the needy, that's what we're covering today, 
and then prayer, and then fasting. And those two that we'll cover in the next week. And he covers these three practices in particular because they were the core practices of Hebrew spirituality at the time of Jesus. Much like how if someone asked us today, what are the most important practices for following Jesus? You might say Bible reading, prayer, and going to church. Because those are seen basically as the three core practices to following Jesus in our cultural moment. But in Jesus' day, it was these three. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Today we'll be covering giving to the needy. So let's work through the text and see what Jesus has to say about giving to the needy and living in secret. Giving for the right reasons. It starts with this line in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus begins this teaching warning his audience about the very righteous kind of living he had actually just taught them about in Matthew 5. Righteousness can be harmful, for it can serve the most self-centered of all human desires, self-glorification. Righteousness can be overly conscious of itself, and it can just feed our ego in pride. A very literal translation of this verse from Greek could be, watch out that you do not do your righteousness in front of other people. Theatrical righteousness, that's what we could call this. It's a kind of living where we do what is good in order to be dramatically noticeable. We do something good so we can post about it on Instagram, so we can tell all our coworkers about it at happy hour, so we can share it with our friends over dinner. We don't love our kids maybe, so, or we do love our kids so other parents will just be impressed with us. And Jesus re- rejects that kind of motivation for public notice of doing good so that others will see us, having that as our core motivation. Don't do the right things for the wrong reasons. Instead, Jesus tells his followers to do this, starting with our first practice we are covering in today's example. So that's sort of Jesus' thesis statement in verse 1, and here's how Jesus uh, encourages us to live instead. He says, so when you give to the needy, now this phrase, give to the needy in English, it's one, uh, give to the needy, that's a phrase in English, but it's actually one word in Greek. It is elemosun. And it's translated in the King James as one word, almsgiving, which I actually think does a better job because this uh, task or invitation Jesus has of giving to the needy, it's about more than just giving money. It is that, but it has this massive semantic range too that actually shows that it means all kinds of other things. Almsgiving or giving to the needy, this Greek word, elemosun, it's about everything from giving your money to restore community church to serving a foster parent, to dishing out groceries at a food pantry, to meeting a need through a care portal. It's about, it's it's not just about giving your money. It is about that, but it's also about giving your time, your life, everything you have got to give. It's less like how we use the word generosity, and it's more like what we could call the work of doing justice. And doing justice was and is central to following Jesus. You read the Old Testament and you see it is almost on every page. You cannot read the Bible without getting sucked into the gravitational pull of God's heart for the poor and for the marginalized. That's why Jesus does not say in this text, if you give to the needy, or should you give to the needy. It's when. When you give to the needy. It's non-negotiable. And so he continues, when you give to the needy. 
do not announce it with trumpets. Now, on one level, this is a hyperbole. No one actually had a soundtrack behind their charitable donations. <laughs> but this critique is more real than you'd think. And that's because the giving box in the Jewish temple was made out of a ram's horn. It was similar to a shofar, which was the Jewish equivalent to a trumpet, a musical instrument that was often used in worship or in the call to war. And add that to the fact that at this time in history, money was only coins. There was no paper or plastic. There was no like, app you could give on. And so you could, if you wanted, very quietly and gently, you could you know, walk into the Jewish temple and you could gently, quietly you know, place your few coins at the bottom of the giving box. But the common practice was to announce your arrival at the temple by tossing a few coins in to hear the ding, 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 ding of your donation going in. A person might, you know, walk through the door, you know, take a step back and boom, hit, it, hit all their coins in like one after another. Ding, 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 ding. That was the preferred entrance, especially of the big givers. So do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus is saying, when you give to the needy, when you do the work of justice, but you are just doing it to be seen by others, you are doing it for the approval or because of the disapproval of others, that's fine. You give to the needy so that you can hear that ding, 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 ding. And everybody else that's sitting in the synagogue, you know, is thinking, wow, that person just, wow, they gave a lot. And you know, they're all just going to want to turn and look to see who, who just walked in with that generous donation. And Jesus is saying, if you're giving for that, for that head turn at how great you have done and how much good you have done, or because you're scared of what people might think if you walk in and they don't hear any dings, he's saying, if you're doing what you're doing to be seen by others, for their approval or because you're afraid of their disapproval, that's fine. You'll get what you want. A high five, a pat on the back, a comment on your Instagram page, a like on TikTok, a wow, you're amazing, whatever. If that's what you're after, you'll get it. But that's all you'll get. That's what Jesus is saying. And as we'll see, Jesus actually isn't down on us doing good works for a reward. He just thinks that if the reward you're after is applause or accolades from your peers, you have set your sights far too low. And you're doing what you are doing for the wrong reasons. So here's the prescription Jesus gives us for this. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Now what does this mean? Isn't that kind of like saying, don't think about the purple elephant, and all you can do is what? You know, think about the purple elephant. What does this mean? Here's what it means. It's that as we follow Jesus, one of his end goals for us is that by his Holy Spirit, we become the kinds of people who naturally do uh, Jesus-y things without even thinking about it, or much less thinking less of it. Here's Dallas Willard on this. He says, the kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. What they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. These are the people 
who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who is watching, for they are absorbed in love of God and neighbor. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. That's what it means for your left hand to not know what your right hand is doing. Jesus is saying, my invitation is to give in secret so that you become the kind of person that you're just doing good all of the time and you don't even like realize it. It's just automatic. Like doing good is so baked into you that the need for approval or the fear of disapproval is not even on your mind at all. It's like, this is just who I have become. My heart has been so transformed by the Holy Spirit that I just do good without thinking. And we all know people who are like this. You compliment them on the way that they listen to you attentively, and they look at you kind of confused. You're like, wow, thank you so much for meeting with me and you know, paying attention to all the things that were going on in, in my life, and I haven't been listening to you like that, and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, no problem. <laughs> or you share about how meaningful someone's kind gesture was to you, and they are like a little uh, embarrassed or maybe even taken back. Because they just start naturally do good works and good deeds because it is who they have become. They don't even like think about it. I can't help but think of uh, one of my professors from college who was like this. Uh, he was our psychology professor. And I remember I met with him once a week and he mentored me and we would have all these amazing conversations and he'd answer my questions and he would listen to the things that I was struggling with and what was going on. And I remember when my time was up in college and I met with him for sort of the last time before I, I moved out of Manhattan back to Kansas City and thanking him for these things, thanking him for listening to me, thanking him for asking me challenging questions and being there for me. And he was just sort of like, yeah, no problem. Like it didn't, it wasn't that difficult for him. It wasn't this huge thing for him to be doing. It was just because that was who he was. Over the years of his life, he'd become someone that gave students the time of day, that listened to them intently, that pushed back and challenged him. He, he wasn't even thinking about it. His left hand didn't know what his right hand was doing. And then Jesus continues. He says, then your father, who sees what is done in secret, hear that. God sees all the good that you do in secret. God sees what no one else sees. What doesn't make it on Instagram. What story is never shared. You see, one of the deep human needs that we all have is to be seen. You think of a child who is constantly looking for someone who is looking for them. I just became a dad and uh, seeing my daughter Noah, just, you know, her, she can't see a lot right now. She's only seven weeks old, but there's this attention that she has where she is first waking up in the morning and she's very present and she's looking around just wanting to make eye contact with with me or with Saren. We come into the world with this need for to to see someone seeing us. You think about how children are constantly saying, watch me, watch me, watch me, you know, jump off the playground, watch me do the monkey bars, watch me do this dive. And you know, the truth is that that need is very vocal when we are children. But the truth is that need never goes away. It just grows up with us. As adults, we still carry that need to be seen and noticed. And the good news of this text is that God sees. God notices. There's nothing that God isn't attentive to. And so then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now this is one of the most interesting parts of Jesus' teaching. See, because Jesus isn't down on the motivation to be seen. He just asks his followers to set their sights not on their peers, but on God. Do good, Jesus says. 
But do good not to be seen by others, but to be seen by God, who is always seeing you. And what is that reward? You'll be seen by God, and and he will reward you. What is the reward? It's exactly that. It's being seen by God. See, you can do good all day long to try to impress other people. But the fact of the matter is their response will always be unreliable. Who knows if they'll actually see you? Your Instagram post that's sharing that story about the awesome thing you did, it could flop. The algorithm could just not show your meticulously crafted TikTok. Your friends could not be impressed by your good deed. And someone maybe will even one-up you. Your resume could leave your potential employer unimpressed. It's unreliable. When we're driven by this need for someone else's approval or their fear of disapproval, we're standing on faulty ground because people are unreliable. But God is not. God sees it all. And God, and God celebrates it all. So do good to be seen by him. Him whose attention is always on you. Forget about everyone else. Because when you are so consumed by needing everyone else's approval or so scared of their disapproval, you won't pay attention to the fact that God is always looking at you with pride and joy. That's why when we do things to be seen by others, we don't get a reward from the Father. That's what Jesus says in the first verse. He doesn't say that because God turns away from us if our motives aren't right. Not that at all. God never turns away from us. His his reward of his presence is a reward of his attention. It's always available. But we turn from God and therefore don't get the reward that has always been ours. When we turn from God and look for, for our peers to notice us, when they determine our value and standing, we lose out on the reward of the Father's attention. We turn away. And we miss out on so much of the love and affection that just overflows within God. And now for some of us, that, this idea of, of not needing the approval of others, of doing good for no one else's approval but God's alone, that's an easy transition for you to make. Like you're not driven that much by what other people think of you. And that's awesome. But for a lot of us, this is a really actually a difficult teaching. Because there's some of us that are suffocating under the pressure of needing someone else's approval. You're driven by an addiction to be seen, to be noticed. And you might even be listening to this and and have some fear within you because you are like, I don't know who I will be, what substance my identity will have if there's no one else there to notice me, notice what I'm doing. And that is no small thing. Like for many, that human need to be seen that we talked about, to be noticed, for some, it's, for some of you, it's, it's largely gone unmet in your life. Maybe you were raised by careerist parents that missed all of your soccer games or your sporting events because they were always out traveling. Or you, maybe your parents were absent-minded and just didn't attend to that desire in you. They were sort of always distracted. Or maybe you didn't grow up with a, a parents that were present at all. And whatever it might be for you, you're haunted, you're haunted by this unmet need within you for someone to notice you, for someone to see you. And so this is not an easy teaching for all. But if that's you, I want you to know that there is hope. And there's a way to break free from the slavery to others' approval or fear of their disapproval. This possibility. And my life is a witness to this. You know, I, I am a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a leader here at Restore. And, you know, 
for me, like coming into ministry, it'd be easy for me to stand or to sit here and just say, you know, I, I am doing this because of only peer motivations. Because God called me and, you know, Jesus called me and that's the only reason why I do what I do. That's the only reason why I wanted to be a teacher, wanted to be a leader. And that's certainly the case on one level. But I'm a mixed bag. I'm a mixed bag of all kinds of disordered desires and disordered motivations. And I, and I did a few years of therapy, about three or four years in total. And one of the great realizations I had in therapy as I talked about, you know, my life and my, uh, and my childhood and especially my middle school and high school years is that I had really from about uh, up until my soft, sophomore, junior year of high school, I didn't really have a true friend. I had a, a kind of a core group of friends uh, that were a really shallow group of friends when I was in middle school that I thought were like my best friends. And I'll never forget the first day of my freshman year of high school, going up to that group of friends and getting the cold shoulder from all of them. And realizing that sort of I was always initiating that friendship with them. I was sort of inserting myself into that friend group and sort of spent about three years without any true friend in my life. And it was in my high school youth group when I had youth pastors that told me, man, I think you've got leadership gifts. And I think you can teach that. I sort of started to be drawn to leadership and drawn to teaching and drawn to pastoring because it was this role that I could, you know, draw other people to me. Like, if I'm a great leader, people will look for me. People will come to me. And I won't have to go. I won't have to initiate. I won't have to work really hard for groups of friends. It'll just be sort of given to me. And so I was driven by this need for approval from people and the fear of disapproval. It's part of what drove me in some ways to become a leader first and foremost. And I've had to spend years really dissecting that and driving into that and, and realizing that I don't need to do what I do for the approval of friends or for a friend group, but just I can do this to serve Jesus. I can do it to serve him and him alone. And to be seen by him really is enough for me. Really is enough. And that's all that Jesus' teaching is about. It's about that motivation, purifying your motivations. Because the need for others' approval or the fear of their disapproval, it's finicky ground. Like for me, if I was driven my whole entire life by, in, in my leadership, in my teaching, by the need for everyone's approval or the fear of their disapproval, it would often leave me paralyzed. And so my work has been to become free from that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And so here's what Jesus says that we can do to start to learn to live this way. It's to practice living in secret. How do we break free from the tyranny of needing to look good and instead rest in God's sight on us? Live in secret. That's what Jesus says. Give in secret. Just like that anonymous person did for my wife and I at the restaurant. And that's what I've had to do in my own, in my own life and in my own journey, to just do good to lead, to teach, not for anyone else's approval, but just to make, to, to, to rest in God's pride and God's love for me. And so this week, here's the invitation. Go and do something, Jesus-y. Do a good work, a kind deed, give something to the needy, volunteer somewhere, take a child in need of a mentor out to ice cream, pay for someone's meal, write a handwritten note to someone, just do something, something small, and do it in secret. Don't post it online anywhere. Don't share it with anyone. Don't casually mention it at your small group when you're catching up uh, sometime this week. Don't mention it uh, to your spouse, maybe even. Just do something. And after you do it, pause for a moment and imagine the Father's face and imagine a smile there and feeling of pride. 
And let God smile over you and his love for you be enough. And let that loving gaze that is actually always on you give rest to your soul. And let it answer your heart's great need to be seen and your your heart's great need to be noticed. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we are all a mixed bag of motives. And we do things for pure reasons. And we do things for not so pure reasons. And I am one of one of that. And I, I live that. I'm a mixed bag. But God, this teaching I know over time has freed me from that need for others' approval or, or fear of their disapproval. And I know it can free all of us as we learn to live in secret and rest in your great love for us. So free us, God. Help us to break free of living in that paralysis so that we may be at rest and at peace and that we may do good and do it in such a way that we don't even realize we're doing good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now we-